I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we are coming to you from the Kodo at the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm Podcast for October 17th, 2008, in which we respond to listener questions. Okay, so not too long ago on our Facebook page, we received an, an, uh, a question, a query, an unsolicited request of information. <laughs> um, and that gave Harry and I the idea of doing a show that would respond to listeners' questions. Um, we are planning on making this a... Uh, a recurring theme, a recurring topic of conversation here in our in our in our podcasts. So this is our little subtle plug of saying that all of our listeners should send us their questions. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> for now, we'll we'll start with uh, with our with our first question. Right, we already got one. We didn't <laughs> even have to ask for it. <laughs> so this question comes from one of our uh, one of our fans of our Facebook page. If you're not already a fan, you should become one. Yes. We need more. (laughs) Um, It's from a fan named Eric. Um, We believe he lives in Oregon, but we're not sure because you can never really know where anybody is on the Internet. Um, But he writes, uh, thank you for these Shin podcasts. By the way, any plans for a podcast that talks about the daily practice of Jodo Shinshu and what those of us many hours from a community can do? Which I think is a, a fine, excellent question. Absolutely. And it brought me back. Brought you back? Yeah, back to uh, when I was first becoming interested in Buddhism and Jodo Shinshu. Not only Jodo Shinshu, but uh, Jodo Shinshu was in there. And I found that it, I haven't thought about it in a long time, but yeah, it is kind of difficult. It's kind of an issue uh, if you don't live near uh, other people that are... Uh, practicing or uh, an, a community or whatever, however we want to uh, consider it, uh, it is kind of an issue. Uh, what do you do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's difficult because a lot of times I think just in our regular daily lives you get kind of caught up in everyday life, right? And and uh, it's difficult enough I think when you're in a community uh, to to live Jodo Shinshu and you know mm-hmm. what do you do even then? And we can talk about that a little bit too maybe. Uh, but certainly I think it's a um, an important point and something that we need to uh, address. You have any thoughts? <laughs> As you were talking about it, I realized I was supposed to think about this. <laughs> we were supposed to actually answer this. Yeah, <laughs> and that'll do it for today's episode. <laughs> Send in your questions. <laughs> well, that's not helpful. <laughs> um, do, well, do you have it? Well, you, you obviously don't have any thoughts. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, my my first thought, of course, is that um, you know we live in a, a here in the modern age. It's actually pretty easy to meet people who don't necessarily live near you, mm-hmm. so you can certainly get information. Um, and this podcast itself is a good example of of clearly here's somebody who's who's listening right. to us who doesn't live anywhere near us. Right. Theoretically, right. maybe he does. <laughs> um, <laughs> This is a long-winded, weird answer. Perhaps we should cut. <laughs> Do some good editing. <laughs> Creative editing. 
Um, anyway, I was just thinking that, it, that that one of the things that people have contacted me about before is this question of, of where can I get information and making connections online, basically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. But then it's challenging, like you said. I mean, we do have everyday life tends to get in the way. Mm-hmm. Lord knows I could practice more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, um, the Internet is amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the amount of information that's available, uh, even the amount of books that are available is way more than even when I started getting yeah, interested yeah. What, around early 1990s. Uh, at that point, there were books, but they were still kind of trickling out, uh, and they weren't always the easiest to find either. They weren't from you know major publishers necessarily. Uh, and so the amount of information that's out there is, is uh, astounding, really. And it's but, a blessing and a curse. Yeah, and also it doesn't. That doesn't always work for all people either, mm-hmm. though. That not everyone is uh, oriented towards picking up a book and reading voraciously, right? Or going online and reading uh, stuff offline. Uh, that's not the best way for everyone to learn. If if that's how you learn, then you're in luck, I think, because there is <laughs> you know a lot out there. But I think it's been brought to my attention that not everyone learns that way, and so that's not an adequate answer for everyone necessarily. Yeah. But certainly there are great websites. Uh, uh, Dr. Al Bloom has some great, great right. stuff uh, on his website. Uh, we can provide some of those links later. Uh, and, you know, I think as time goes on, there's there's more and more information mm-hmm. available in text form online. Uh, right. Yeah. But there's also interactive stuff online um, as well. I know Al Bloom's site has a, what he calls the e-sanga. No, does he call it the e-sanga? I think he calls it a virtual sanga. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know how successful that's been, mm-hmm. um, but there's other electronic communities like that out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, having said that, and to, to piggyback on what you were saying about text-based experiences um, or text-based learning, I you know think that the internet is a great resource, but it can only go so far. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even if you're interacting with people via a chat room or through blogs or whatever, that's still very limited. Mm-hmm in terms of the overall human experience. Right, right. <laughs> um, right. You know, it's interesting. I think that we think of blogs as this, like, great sort of two-way communication thing, but really blogs are pretty one-way. Yeah, who it's, reads the It's comments? pretty much just one per- <laughs> Hey. <laughs> <laughs> just because you don't read the comments. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, I find often, too, sometimes there's the blog, and then you get the comments. And I'm, you're good because you, in your blog, uh, often respond to comments but i see other blogs too sometimes when there's uh you can respond to a blog and then um nothing comes back right right and so of course it's the internet and so you shouldn't read too much into that it's not like they're sitting there like what a jerk they're i'm not going to respond to that right that's not what they're thinking (laughs) but it can be odd sometimes right because you are at this remove yeah right and it's kind of sitting in this message in a bottle kind of thing and then pick it up and read it you may get a response now you may get a response later someone may read it and think a response without taking the time to type right so yeah as a form of communication in the the kind of message board kind of sense sometimes it's uh, limited yeah and there's a lot of um threads that can start and so if your thread didn't get picked up then you're out of luck right right yeah um, and uh, on top of all that, it doesn't really answer the question of practice. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I think that learning and reading and, and acquiring more knowledge about Buddhism is one form of practice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be uh, devalued. Mm-hmm. 
but it's not the only kind of practice. Like you were saying before, just merely reading about Buddhism is not helpful for everybody, but I don't think that's helpful for anybody, really. I mean, let me rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> only reading about Buddhism is not, wait, wait, wait. should not be taken as the only thing that any one person should do. You should do more than just read about Buddhism, but there should mm-hmm. be more practice involved, mm-hmm. in my not-so-humble opinion. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to take the other side, sometimes... Uh, I think in like our the BCA temple communities, uh, sometimes it seems like there's an impression that uh, maybe there's not enough learning mm. and that being in that community doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to learn anything about Buddhism because uh, you may not even go to the service. You may drop your kids off at service and then you wait in the car or you go to a coffee shop and come back and pick up the kids. That happens. So that person is part of this community and has a community nearby uh, but may not be learning anything. Uh, but certainly there are people um, who want to learn and their study classes and everyone picks things up differently. Uh, and that kind of learning, again, isn't the only thing. And we were talking this morning in my class about how, uh, like for kids, for example, kids don't necessarily learn all the like uh, doctrines and, you know, all these kind of different Buddhist doctrines and, and intellectually thinking about this stuff. But that's okay. Because a really another really important part of it, of the, the temple community, is being with other Buddhists, mm-hmm. right? And then behaving in a certain way, in certain ways. There's certain things that we, quote-unquote, do that may or may not be practiced in a strict uh, doctrinal Buddhist sense, but in a more general sense, there are things that we do in our daily lives or, or at certain times in our life or at certain times of the day at temple or whatever. Uh, I don't want to be too mysterious about it. Uh, but like, for instance, uh, entering the hondo, entering the hall. Uh, in, in Jodo Shinshu and uh, probably a lot of Buddhism in Japan, uh, people bow when they enter into the hondo. So that's something that kind of becomes basic, I think, and almost take for granted. It becomes almost automatic. But that is something uh, that we practice, that's part of our lives, I think, when we're able to uh, participate in a community. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I don't. I think actually, I think that living a, a Buddhist life, so to speak, or or learning those small, subtle aspects of of practice are huge. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we could focus on explicit rituals or obvious practices like meditation or chanting, but I think that all the other little stuff that we do is is just as important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of the word uh, to socialize, which often sounds weird like, like you're socializing people oh was, like indoctrination kind yeah of thing, indoctrination right, right. kind of thing i was thinking um, more like hanging out <laughs> i went to the academic place yeah. <laughs> um <clears throat> but i think that, that that's you know an important part about being a buddhist is learning how to be a buddhist right like that's being a buddhist really means something and how you do that is is not just this one thing that you do in a particular ritual but it's it's everything that you do mm-hmm. right like learning how to be a buddhist in that full sense of the term would be learning how to do all those small little rituals and whatnot that you have that you don't have to learn in a temple or in a community necessarily but within that community is how you learn how to enact those sort of buddhist mm-hmm. principles that i think are related to the doctrinal stuff that the bca is pushing people to learn mm-hmm. so i think they're related mm-hmm. absolutely oh yeah yeah absolutely all this stuff, bowing when you enter the hondo, uh, going up to offer incense, doing oshoko. Uh, my members are pretty well trained that they know if they're the chairperson, that after I come in, 
that uh, I sit down and then they go up in Oshoko first before mm. doing the chairperson thing. And I'm impressed with my members. I didn't do it necessarily. I think they learned before I got there, but it's good. You know, I think, oh, I didn't tell them to do the Oshoko first, but then, oh, they did it. All right. So they've learned that. They've kind of internalized it, right? That before you go up and make a presentation, you offer incense to the Buddha, mm-hmm. put your hands together and gosh, bow, and then go uh, and do that. So, yeah. Maybe we've jumped the gun a little bit. Um, in a sense, I mean, practice in Buddhism, practice in Jodo Shinshu, right, is incorporates a lot of stuff. There's a yeah. there's a really wide uh, range of possibilities there. I think for Jodo Shinshu, it's complicated. It's complicated, and but weird. If we go to like the <laughs> the the basic thing would be the Nembutsu, right? And and just to clarify, the reason why I say it's complicated and weird is because this. Jodo Shinshu has this doctrinal stance that we don't have practice. Right. So then it's... Well, there is practice, but <coughs> whose practice is it? Right, right. There's, there's all these complicated... I remember when I first discovered Jodo Shinshu, I'd ask ministers this question and get these, you know, ambivalent, you know, obscure answers that didn't make a lot of sense. And I was like, well, this is... This <laughs> yeah, is awfully yeah. strange. Well, let's, <laughs> let's then back up away from Jodo Shinshu necessarily mm-hmm. and talk about Pure Land Buddhism a little bit. And... That way, we don't have to worry so much about the the subtleties of whose nembutsu is it, right? But that there is this nembutsu or nianfo, I guess in Chinese, mm-hmm. uh, which is well, literally, it means mindfulness of the Buddha, right? Or bringing the Buddha to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could, you know, you can go way into depth in that. But but there's this practice in Pure Land. Uh, maybe especially um, some forms of Japanese Pure Land, where reciting the name of the Buddha, that is the core practice, uh, which Nembutsu refers to, and that would be Namo Amida Butsu, uh, saying, uh, I take refuge in Amida Buddha, basically. Mm-hmm. And people say it. This is like this verbal practice. Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu, Namo Amida Butsu. So that if you go to a temple, you'll hear people saying that. If you go to Japan, you'll hear people saying it even more, although maybe less so than 20 years ago, 50 years ago, when there was just this spontaneous utterance uh, on many, many people's lips. And now it's much more, uh, I think they're losing that spontaneity uh, in Japan as it becomes less and less a part of the culture. I don't think it ever really became a part of the culture here in America because uh, it was kind of, contained in a way to the temples and not something you'd be wandering around downtown going namanda 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 you know like reciting this thing you know uh i think in american society that'd be kind of strange yeah yeah well i think you could get away with it now if you had one of those bluetooth headsets yeah yeah yeah. people would just think talking on a cell phone (laughs) you should have nim bluetooth Uh. it has a little light in it it's got a led you can stick it on there (laughs) people won't think you're crazy right he's just talking on a cell phone yeah <laughs> so this practice of saying the name of the Buddha, Namo Amida Butsu, uh, right, is to me the fundamental practice in Pure Land Buddhism. Mm. There are other practices as well. The other sense of Nembutsu as m- visualizing the Buddha, right? These complex visualizations. Uh, but in the more popular sense, the, the Pure Land as it developed in a, a kind of popular Buddhism, not only Japan, China, Korea, mm-hmm. uh, Vietnam. Uh, but this reciting the name of the Buddha is very important. Uh, and so people still do that uh, in Japan, uh, other parts of Asia, and 
here too people do say it uh, that to me that's something that you can do without going to a community right. I mean that it's odd at first though right namo amida butsu Am I, when do I say it how do I say it is there a certain way I'm supposed to say it it's difficult to pronounce uh, what does it mean right there's all kinds of questions uh, but maybe I think in a way that's one way you could approach practicing Practice. Buddhism pure land Buddhism mm-hmm. um, being away from a community but that doesn't make it any easier because it's kind of awkward I think huh I felt awkward I didn't know what I was saying yeah uh, when I first encountered it and well yeah. I think it, it can be awkward if you're doing it for the, you know, for the first time by yourself, right? Without having heard someone else say it, maybe too. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but I also kind of think that's part of part of the the practice itself is sort of wrestling with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can you can just sort of blindly recite I can't even say it once. <laughs> um, you can sound, you know, blindly repeat that over and over again. Um, but I think struggling with the depth of that for me is part of the practice too. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I want to be careful not to say that I'm thinking about doing it while I'm doing it or that I'm analyzing it, you know, with my critical mind while I'm doing it. Cause that's not really what I mean. It's just, mm-hmm. but that's okay too. <clears throat> yeah. I think that's I okay think it too. Does happen. I, but I think, I, I think I'm more just sort of focusing on the, the Nen part of that, mm-hmm. the bringing to mind, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'm, if you're bringing to mind the Buddha, well, that's a really complicated high teaching really. I mean, what does it mean to bring to mind the Buddha, right? Does that just mean being focused on saying the words? Does that mean saying the words and sort of mentally visualizing the Buddha? Are you visual visualizing or thinking about the Buddha in a physical way or um, a more symbolic or metaphorical way? You know, all of those things for me come up, <laughs> which I think is part. And yeah, I mean, those are things I struggle with, but you know, that's the fun of it. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, Absolutely. And then you can get into the, the um, more Shinshu issues of it, mm-hmm. of uh, that Namo Amida Butsu is maybe not my practice necessarily. It can be, but ultimately it shouldn't be my practice. Namo Amida Butsu is Buddha reality itself right. revealing itself to us. Uh, and they talk about in Shinshu, not sometimes it's not so important to say the name as to hear the name. They talk about this idea of hearing the name, hearing Namo Amida Butsu. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, and it's not referring to like hearing with your ears. It's not uh, the the normal sense of like listening to someone talking, right, or hearing these physical sounds in the environment, uh, but more kind of awakening on some level to Namo Amida Butsu. And that's where things can get really complicated yeah but complicated is maybe not the right word uh that's maybe the core of it that you know if you're thinking about it then that's not the right approach right (laughs) that it's not something to be thought of that that's the way it is and ultimately nembutsu comes out spontaneously in response to hearing this name and so shinji talks about how nembutsu isn't supposed to be self-power right but we're supposed to awaken to the other power of Amida Buddha, and then we say Namo Amida Butsu in response to that, in gratitude to that, or in praise mm. uh, of the Buddha. But how do you do that? Can you do that on purpose? Can you say, I'm saying this and thanks, Namo Amida Butsu, thank you. Yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's sort of, you know, contradictory, right? You're not supposed to say it 
unless it's spontaneous, but how do you make it spontaneous? Right. So you still have to say it, right? And this kind of back and forth, this constant back and forth, I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. For, for some more specifics about practice, I think also having an altar is uh, a butadan mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. home is actually very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, anyway. I mean, we were saying a second ago about just sort of saying the name by yourself. Well, that's, I think, part of the awkwardness for me is, you know, well, I'm sitting on my couch in front of the TV. What am I going to do? Start chanting the name of the Buddha? <laughs> mm-hmm. But having an altar creates a place to actually go mm-hmm. and practice, like a specific this is where I'm doing this thing, which is helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And I suspect it's probably helpful for others since mm-hmm. it wasn't my idea. <laughs> yeah, so that having that special place, mm-hmm. right? This, this something that's apart from our everyday reality where we can take a few moments to go bow, right? maybe put our hands together, uh, whatever. It's, you know, at this point, it's kind of... And there's, as far as, you know... Uh, making a, a Bhutanon is concerned, there's tons of stuff out there for, you know, the, the quote-unquote right way to make a Bhutanon, um, which I'm sure we can argue about what the right way to make a Bhutanon is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but all I'm saying is that there's lots of resources out there for doing that, mm-hmm. um, which I think are really very helpful. And then you have that space where you can go and, and you know, light incense or ring a bell or do whatever you want to do and, you know, be quiet and recite the name or chant, you know, other... Uh, sutras, mm-hmm. for example. Right, right, right. I like chanting. Chanting's my thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> or even just sit quietly, Yeah. Uh, reflect or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The bell can be nice because mm-hmm. uh, if you have um, a bell, like they have the Tibetan singing bowls. I'm not convinced right. that in Tibet they use them. Like in Tibetan Buddhism that they make them sing. <laughs> I think yeah, they're more for yeah. ringing. Like in the Japanese ones too, you can do that with them where they, they make that tone by rubbing the stick around the edge. But normally you just hit it so to make that tone. Yeah, I've never seen Tibetan monks make them sing. Yeah. I'm, you know, not a, a Tibetan Buddhist or monk or expert, so mm-hmm. what yeah, I know. Either, but but <laughs> <laughs> it's more but ring most it. of the Tibetan rituals I've seen have been ringing the bells, right. yeah, yeah. And you can just ring it once, say the name. Recite it a few times, or and then sit quietly, and then ring the bell again. The bell can help kind of mark. I find that the bells in Buddhism help kind of mark time. Right. Right, so that you hit it once, and then you can recite the name, and then sit for a while, and then ring it again, recite the name again, and then that can be like just a, a kind of abbreviated pocket-sized Buddhist ritual, mm-hmm. right, where um, you can take some time out of your day, uh, and begin to kind of incorporate this into your life. Yeah. But you don't have to say the name in ritual sense either. So there's, there's, it's nice where you can say the name in this kind of ritual sense, set this time and this place aside. Right. But also you're sitting in your car, you can say it. Sure, sure. Right? In the middle of traffic, instead of getting angry at people, try reciting the name instead. I do that all the time. Right? Not, <laughs> and not necessarily as an attempt to like change anything, but just something different to do. Right, and to take your mind off of that or whatever, it doesn't have to be right. understood. And that's something different to do, yeah. I think, is, is, is the crux of the issue because I feel like most of what we do in our day-to-day lives is, is habitual behavior. Mm. You know, if you're driving and you get cut off, you get mad. Then the next day someone cuts you off, you get mad again. And that kind of becomes your conditioned response to that behavior. But mm-hmm. if you can change that behavior and replace it with a different habit, then you're effectively changing you. On some fundamental level, um, which is really what it's all about, right? I mean, this is what we do in Buddhism: is find ways to 
figure out what's going on in our heads and change it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or so at I, the very least, become aware of it. Right. Right. Bring right. it up into our awareness so that it's not automatic and we're not doing it by habit. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Um, so I think that absolutely like doing, doing, res- responding to your normal negative energy with uh, uh, positive energy of saying the name um, is probably hugely beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, coupling that with prescribed times for practice, I think is also very helpful because, you know, when you actually set aside time to practice, then you're practicing in that sort of true sense of the word, right? You're actually practicing this thing that you can do in your daily life Mm -hmm. is another way to look at that Mm -hmm. perhaps. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that, um, that this question brought up for me was the idea of, um, I think the Sanskrit is Kalyana Mitra Mm. of, which is usually translated as spiritual friend, I think, mm-hmm. or good or, friend, or, or good or, friend, or, or dharma friend, or mm-hmm. it's not dharma friend really because it's not dharma mitra. But anyway, right. <laughs> um, it's somebody that you share the path with, more or less. Um, and I really, I think this is an idea that does not get a lot of press in Buddhism in the West. It's it's out there, but it doesn't get talked about a lot. But I think it's actually a really good thing to think about, particularly in terms of daily practice and practicing where you're not with a large community. Um, and that is just to find somebody to talk to, right? So somebody to actually talk about your practice with, I suspect that even if you're living in, you know, very far away from a major center, there's somebody else that, you know, who's interested in the same things who can become your sort of spiritual friend in a way. Right. Um, I think that's actually really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. To, to be personal and possibly sentimental for a second. Um, one of the reasons why I like doing this podcast so much is because it gives me an opportunity to, to talk about these ideas that we have and my own practice. And sometimes I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Often. <laughs> but, but having these conversations enables mm-hmm. me to think about it in different ways and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and sort of, uh, you know, this in, uh, this in and of itself is, is one of one of my practices. Mm-hmm. So I think that finding people out there that you can relate to and have this sort of relationship with is very valuable, even if it's not like a formal, large community, even right. one right. person. And you can actually be part of a formal, large community and not have a Kalyana Mitra yeah, around, yeah. right? It takes a while to get to know people and to know who you can talk about this stuff with. And so, uh, you know, being in that community isn't like the 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 end or the the, the final answer, right? Right. That um, it's it's still a struggle, I think, for each one of us, no matter where we are. Uh, so so don't give up hope, and continue your uh, reflection, right? And and uh, things happen. I think things happen when they happen, right. kind of thing, right? And so, yeah. I was just going to say one more thing too, and uh, there's this idea of nishu jinchin or the the two kinds of deep and trusting, mm-hmm. and so uh, this comes from Shandao and Shinran quotes it, and uh, I'm not going to read the the original here, but basically, I think it's deep insight into the Buddha, into the Dharma, and then deep insight into yourself. And so there's a kind of traditional answer to this, but but in a way I think that's that encompasses a lot. Right? That we want to learn about the Buddha and we want to gain insight into Buddha reality uh, and into the Dharma. And that means compassion. Uh, it's also impermanence and interconnectedness and all the stuff that we teach about uh, what the Dharma is. But then there's also the flip side of deep insight into myself. And a large part of this is to, to 
learn to see myself, to, to see myself maybe for the first time. Uh, and that we do get conditioned into a lot of things and a lot of what we do and how we live is just kind of automatic and habitual and it's from experiences we had when we were two or something that we can't even remember, we weren't even conscious of, we don't have any memory of, right? And so I think uh, part of Buddhism is to begin to be able to see these things, see why we act the way we act, see why I am who I am, and that that's okay, right? And that that's fine. And, uh, and so that combination of the two, the insight into the Dharma, insight into myself, uh, is, is another uh, maybe uh, signpost, right? Another mm-hmm. kind of direction uh, that you can take your practice in, that I want to gain deeper insight into the Dharma and into myself. So before we wrap this up, uh, we want to request, uh, respectfully, uh, that uh, if you have any questions or you want to ask us anything or tell us anything or tell us off or whatever, <laughs> feel free to either contact us through the Dharma Realm website, right. dharmaram.com. We'll have a link on there. There's a link. Yeah, I think there's probably a contact us, and if there isn't, it'll be up within right. a few hours. Absolutely. Because Scott's going to get to work it's, if he hasn't done it already. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like magic. <laughs> and if you're on our uh, Facebook page and you're one of our friends, you can contact us through there too. Uh, and we're not going to do everyone, obviously, on, on questions, but uh, it's a... It's fun and it's yeah, good yeah. for us and it's good for you. So uh, <laughs> everyone wins. Yeah. <laughs> so feel free to uh, ask or talk or communicate or whatever. I would really appreciate it. Great. Well, this will conclude uh, this podcast for October seventeenth, in which we uh, addressed some of our listener questions. Mm-hmm.